Hey folks, it's your monthly reminder that this summer, CrimeCon, in partnership with CBS Reality, is back in London on Saturday the 11th and Sunday the 12th of June, and yours truly will be there with bells on. The detective dogs will be back, and I can't wait to see them. And guests include a host of professionals working in all parts of the criminal justice system, researchers on everything from psychology to forensics, and the creators of amazing documentaries. There are even a few speakers who found themselves on the wrong side of the law. Podcast Row is even bigger and better this year too. All of your favorites from home and abroad will be there. Nicola Talent, crime reporter and host of Crime World is joining us. And I'm excited to meet Robin from The Trail Went Cold and hang out again with the lads from Generation Y, Esther from Once Upon a Crime, the lovely folks at They Walk Among Us and Paul from The True Crime Enthusiast. There will be podcast live shows and I'll be hosting a roundtable discussion with a few of my pod friends, talking shop and behind the scenes. Plus, the immersive CSI experience this year sounds amazing. No spoilers, but I am ready for it. I'm so excited to have been invited back to CrimeCon again and I hope I'll get to see you there. Limited tickets are available now and make sure to use the code MENSREA for your special 10% discount and to let CrimeCon know I sent you. To get your tickets or for more information, head to crimecon.co.uk. You're listening to the Mens Rea podcast, and this is the story of Belinda Pereira. Christmas time in Dublin is a thing to behold. Aside from the unpredictable and fleeting cloud-free sunny spring or summer day, Christmas in Dublin is the best time of year. The darkness of the winter, something that we otherwise complain of, wraps the city up and allows the twinkling Christmas lights to provide cheer. It's cold, yes, but not in a hazardous way usually. And that means that seeking out a fire to sit next to and sip a hot whiskey or port after spending time in the late opening shops is a pleasure. At a time when we have the darkest days of the year, we're busy and social, nearly like there's a genetic memory of centuries of midwinter celebrations making the most of the lack of sunlight. And so while many places around the world grow quiet and still around the Christmas holiday, Dublin is full of buzz. And in 1996, that's what brought 26-year-old Belinda Pereira to Dublin. Belinda was from London. She lived in the Rains Park area of Wimbledon with her mother, but her family was originally from Sri Lanka and they'd moved to Britain when Belinda was a child. When she was a teen, Belinda's parents had split up and she stayed with her mum near the city. After a series of low-paying jobs at the age of 17, Belinda became involved in sex work. Belinda was petite, standing at only 4 foot 9 inches. She had a heart-shaped face and a beautiful smile, framed by long, dark hair. Unfortunately, she had also apparently developed a drug addiction. As time went on, Belinda began to learn the ins and outs of the sex industry and heard that there was money to be made in Dublin. 
She had started coming over to Dublin and spending a few weeks here before returning back to England. It wasn't uncommon at the time for women to come to Dublin for a bit to work before returning to the bigger cities in the UK. Making arrangements to spend a week in Dublin was as easy as answering an ad in the paper. And so it was that Belinda had arrived in Dublin on the morning of Christmas Eve, 1996, and was met at Dublin Airport by a man who brought her to an apartment. She was staying at a flat in Mellor Court in Liffey Street in the city, which is about as central as you can get. She was working alone in the flat, having clients come to meet her there, and she planned on returning home to the UK on New Year's Eve. But on the 29th of December, Gardy received a report that a body of a woman had been discovered in a city centre flat. Belinda Pereira was found beaten to death in the apartment on Liffey Street, in a pool of blood. Early reports were that she had been discovered by the man who had sublet the place to her over the Christmas break. The man told Gardie that he'd last spoken to Belinda on the phone at 3pm the day before. Belinda was found lying on her back on her bed. She was naked, but covered with the bedclothes. Her head was slumped to the left and reports were that she had suffered severe injuries to her head. Gardie said they had found no sign of a break-in in the flat. The apartment building was very quiet as many people had left for the Christmas period. There was no one there to overhear any noise that the attack might have caused. The Sunday World reported that Gardie believed that the injuries to Belinda's head were inflicted with a weapon of some sort, perhaps a claw hammer, but Gardie did not find any weapon used in the attack in the flat. An intensive search of the nearby River Liffey, which was just seconds away from the flat's entrance. The paper said that it seemed likely that Belinda's killer had brought the weapon used to the flat with him, which suggested that the crime was premeditated. Belinda Pereira was the 19th woman to die in Ireland in 1996, just days after Sophie Toscan de Plantier. However, Belinda's name is not remembered as well. 25 members of Angarda Siakana were initially assigned to work the case, headed by Superintendent Bill O'Donoghue. He appealed publicly for any of Belinda's clients to come forward in the strictest confidence so that detectives could ascertain what had gone on in her final days. They particularly wanted to speak to anyone who had seen Belinda at the apartment on Saturday night or Sunday morning. It was strongly underlined that Gardie weren't interested in the nature of these meetings. Rather, they were looking for a murderer. During their search of Belinda's ransacked, rented flat, Gardie found her ID papers, which gave them a name and an address in Wimbledon, in London. The Mesh was contacted, who called out to the address listed, but there was no one home. Belinda's mother was also away over the holiday period. The information was then passed on to Interpol, who tracked Belinda's family down. Authorities in Sri Lanka were contacted and her family was located. Belinda's mum had travelled to her home country to celebrate the new year with her family there, but rather than that celebration, she was given the awful news that her daughter was dead. Belinda's distraught parents arrived into Dublin on the 4th of January to identify Belinda's body. Her mother and relations were met by officials at the airport and were brought to Store Street Garda Station to hear details of the investigation and give their own statements. 
Mrs. Pereira asked Gardie to find her daughter's killer. The family was then brought to the morgue, where Belinda's father, who lived in Surrey, identified his daughter's body. One Garda source told the Sunday World, quote, It has to be remembered that she was someone's daughter and that this is a terrible and tragic time for her family. Another told the Sunday Independent, quote, It's been very traumatic for them. They weren't aware of what she was doing. They're very tired and distraught. Belinda's family was reported to have thought that she had a well-paid office job. Belinda's body was brought to Glasnevin Cemetery on Tuesday the 7th of January 1997, where she was cremated, and her remains were brought back to London with family. That weekend, prayers were offered for Belinda in a little church down the road from her and her mother's home, which was attached to the Ursuline Convent. Belinda had actually gone to school with the nuns there. There had been no news of her death locally, and Belinda's killing got no mention in the press in the UK either. One of the sisters from the Order, who taught in the school while Belinda was there, recalled the young woman and said that she was a very sweet girl, but she didn't remember whether Belinda had completed the senior cycle in the school. The nun told the Sunday Tribune, quote, She just seemed to fade away. It was reported that, after leaving Dublin, Belinda's mother had returned to Sri Lanka. As the Irish Independent outlined, Belinda was intensely secretive, and not only had her family not known about her drug dependency, but neither did her few close friends. She had totally compartmentalised her life, and this posed the investigators a difficulty when it came to building their case. And all of this had happened in the context of an already secretive, underground and illegal part of society. Any of Belinda's worries related to her work never made their way back to her family, and because she worked in an apartment directly with a pimp, she had little contact with other girls who were also working in Dublin. The weekend following Belinda's killing, a number of guardies spent Saturday night and late into Sunday afternoon interviewing passers-by on Liffey Street, in the hopes that someone walking there had passed by on the day of Belinda's death and might have noticed something of consequence for the investigation. Questionnaires had also been handed out and were completed by a large number of members of the public. By Monday the 6th of January, Gardie were sifting their way through those witness statements. However, Superintendent Bill O'Donoghue said that there was still no apparent motive in the case, He discounted reports from over the weekend that a weapon had been brought to the apartment and that the murder was premeditated, saying that detectives had no evidence to suggest this. He also added that he expected that this would be a long, drawn-out investigation. At least 100 witness statements were taken by that stage. Several of Belinda's clients had come forward too, on foot of the appeal from Gardie for information. A senior officer commented, quote, They gave us all the assistance they could under the circumstances and were very upfront about what was going on. This episode is sponsored in part by our good friends over at Noom. 
Listen, I've been off the no sugar wagon for the last couple of weeks. I got a bit bored with my lovely snack replacements and rather than go and find new ones, I slipped back to, well, cake and chocolate bars. But I'm still using Noom, so here's the good news. It was way easier to realize what had happened and to know that this little interlude is just that, an interlude. Not a full-blown failure resulting in a shame spiral and a complete capitulation to buttercream frosting. And I got to deliver the bad news to myself that my sugar intake actually has an effect on my ability to function and concentrate. This was bad news indeed, as I really do love buttercream, but also love when I'm on the ball and smashing my productivity goals. And honestly, without Noom to help me see that pattern, it was super easy to fob off all the helpful advice I've got from doctors and therapists and psychologists. Turns out they were right. It's all a journey folks, and if getting healthier or fitter or losing those COVID pounds is something that you want to do, Noom is perfect for helping you along the way. Noom is based on psychology after all. It's all about your habits really, and your relationship with food and nutrition. Even better, the program takes just a couple of minutes a day. It's personalized to your goals and it's empowering, rather than another shame stick to beat yourself with when, you know, you're human. So if you're ready to embark on your own journey towards better health and nutrition, head on over to Noom dot com slash mensrea to start your trial. That's noom n o o m dot com slash m e n s r e a. This episode is also sponsored in part by BetterHelp. Mental health is often something we don't think too much about until we start having big problems. But stress is one of those things that builds up over time and something that's all too common nowadays. It can be hard to carve out time to look after yourself, but it's absolutely vital. And therapy is an important part of that. I know therapy plays an important role for me, even just keeping in touch with myself and making sure I'm actually aware of what's going on in my life. BetterHelp is so perfect for this kind of thing. It's customized online therapy that offers video phone and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. BetterHelp is also more affordable than in-person therapy. Give it a try and see if online therapy can help lower your stress. And of course, Men's Rea listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash men's. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash men's. On Wednesday, the 8th of January, Stephen Ray, writing for the Evening Herald, revealed that Gardy were planning to travel to the UK in order to interview Belinda's pimps. A number of people who ran brothels in Dublin were brought into Store Street Station to ascertain what they had known about Belinda. Stephen Ray further reported that the wounds on Belinda's head were consistent with a small hatchet, though whatever had been used in the attack on her had still not been found. The next day, Gardy released a photo of Belinda to the press for the first time. The picture was accompanied by another appeal for anyone who recognised her to come forward, and in particular anyone who had seen Belinda between Christmas Eve, the day she arrived in Dublin, and her death on the 29th. Gurdy said they were anxious to build a profile of Belinda and how she had spent that time in the days before her death. According to Tom Brady, writing in the Irish Independent, the guard's theory was that Belinda was murdered either by a pimp or a client, but the police said they were following a number of leads and seemed wary of confirming details of evidence in the case. Sources did say that a number of the people they had asked to come forward had done so and had been eliminated from their inquiries. 
On Friday, the 10th of January, the Evening Herald was reporting that Belinda's apartment had been ransacked and it was possible that whoever had killed her had been looking for money, perhaps a pimp looking for payment. The Sunday World printed an article along the same lines, reporting that Gardy believed Belinda had owed someone money and that this was why she had been killed. That paper asserted that, according to their sources, the Gardy did in fact have a main suspect. Further, it was revealed that the lock on Belinda's bedroom door had been smashed and broken, and the Sunday World said that Gardy believed this damage had been done to make it look as if there had been forced entry and divert Garda attention. Reports received by investigators that Belinda had been seen at a nightclub off Grafton Street on the night she died were followed up on, and Gardy were satisfied that Belinda had not actually been there. The focus of police efforts would remain on the flat in Liffey Street and those who had been in and out of it over those five days. Sources close to the investigation had also disclosed that Belinda's address book had been found, and Gardy were examining that for any pertinent information that might be there. It seemed that Belinda had noted the names of a number of Irish men, or at least their initials, complete with telephone numbers in this book. Again, Gardy asked for men who had known Belinda to come forward. A Herald article said, quote, The identity of her clients will be kept confidential, but punters must be interviewed as part of the murder inquiry. The main concern is to find out who killed Miss Pereira. There was little to no coverage of Belinda's murder in the papers until that first week of the new year. But that quickly changed once the purpose of Belinda's trip to Dublin was discovered. The opportunity to publish detailed examinations of sex work in the capital was too much to resist, especially for the tabloids. Papers delved into Belinda's various trips to Dublin in order to detail how the sex trade in Dublin worked for the readers who were fortunate enough to have lives which never intersected with the more underground activities in the city. It was learned that this had been at least Belinda's third trip to Dublin since October. It seemed she had first made contact with men running brothels in Dublin who had arranged a trip over for her that month. The Sunday World reported that Belinda began her work in a brothel in Temple Bar but had left there when it was raided by the Gardee. None of the women working there were charged with anything at that time. Belinda moved in with two women who she was friendly with and began renting out what was described as a luxury city centre apartment. A number of these kinds of apartments were used by sex workers across Dublin, in addition to what were referred to as health clubs or massage parlours, which operated quite openly. Women working in either of these sorts of establishments would be required to hand over a portion of the fee they charged per hour to the people mainly men, who ran and organised them. The upside of these kinds of situations was that there was a perceived level of safety for the women who worked there, and they were able to charge a premium for their services too. This was multiples of what women who worked on the streets would make. And that's what had brought Belinda to Dublin. She soon made contact with two men who ran a business called the Gentleman's Club. This operation was using cutting-edge technology at the time, linking sex workers with their clients via mobile phone. They advertised the service in In Dublin magazine. 
one of the men placed ads in the magazine for a few hundred pounds per issue. According to the Sunday World, under this arrangement, Belinda paid this man £100 a day up front, and anything she made after that was hers to keep. Other reports said that the deal was that women working in the apartments would charge clients £150 per hour and would hand over 60 to the men who ran the business. It may also have been the case that the women would have to pay rent on the apartment that they were staying and working in, leaving very little left for them after the pimp also took his cut. The advertisements placed by the Gentlemen's Club in in Dublin in December of 1996 boasted that it would be open all over Christmas and that it would be open 24-7. All that men who wanted to avail of the services provided by all sorts of, quote, exotic beauties had to do was ring a mobile number provided in the ad. Many of those calls would go on to be Belinda's clients later in the month, before she was killed. In Dublin magazine had ads for dozens of places where one could go to buy sex, but in the wake of Belinda's murder, this drew scrutiny and criticism. In response, the publisher, Mike Horgan, said, quote, We run the ads as escort agencies. My understanding is that they are escort agencies, full stop. I'm not the moral arbiter of the national populace. Mr. Horgan also pointed out that similar ads were carried in other publications. One of them, Hot Press Magazine, explained that they only carried ads for phone sex lines, not for escorts. They said that there was exploitation and a risk of violence for escort services which wasn't present for the phone lines. That was the rationale that they provided. The ad for the Gentlemen's Club was placed in in Dublin by a person using a fake name and a false address. The mobile number on the ad was registered in February of 1995, just when the ads for the club began appearing in the magazine. 438 calls were recorded on the call log for that number in the month of December 1996, most of which were calls placed to the number that had been diverted to a landline number associated with the address in Liffey Street. The other calls were diverted to an 088 phone number, another mobile. The first outgoing call that month was to Wimbledon, to Belinda's home address there, on the 8th of December. Another was made to Aer Lingus two days later, presumably to organise flights for Belinda's upcoming trip. The final incoming call to the Gentlemen's Club number was made at 8.26pm on the 28th of December. Liz Walsh, reporting for the Sunday Tribune, explained that this was around the time Belinda was known to have last spoken to her pimp and not long before she was murdered. It was also thought that the landline in the flat may have been call-barred, meaning that no outgoing calls could be made from it. If this was the case, Belinda would have had no way to make contact with anyone outside the flat, or call for help if she had had the opportunity to. The tabloid papers also wanted to know more about the women who came over from the UK to spend a week or two working in Ireland. Ben Proctor, writing from London for the Sunday World, spoke to a sex worker in the UK capital. She went by the name Dolores for the article and said that the run-up to Christmas in London was busy, but work dried up then until New Year's Eve. It was totally different in Dublin, though. Apparently, there was always work for girls during that time. Dolores also detailed some of her own experiences of working in Ireland, and said she had once spent an entire weekend with a client in Ireland and had charged £3,000 for that. 
she spent the time with that man attending parties. Other times, she was booked by agencies. Dolores explained that UK women did a lot of escorting for Irish clients. No one would recognise a woman from England at an event in Ireland. It's a small country here, and if a local sex worker ran into someone she knew at an event, well, there might be questions asked. Meanwhile, the Gardaí were trying to trace any other British girls that Belinda might have known or worked alongside. Four weeks after her murder, very little else had been learned by those tasked on the investigation, although Gardaí told the press that they were hopeful that Belinda's killer would be caught. On Sunday, the 19th of January, the Sunday Tribune reported that Gardaí did not believe that Belinda had been killed by a client. Rather, it was more likely that the perpetrator was someone who was involved in bringing British women to Ireland to work in the sex industry here. In the weeks after Belinda Pereira's murder, certain aspects of the Garda investigation were hampered by a renewed sense of caution in the city among those who engaged in sex work or procurement. There was a reticence on behalf of women to go about their work as normal and a sort of natural reaction to the increase in Garda attention and the fear of violence, and the secrecy and clandestine nature inherent in sex work was further compounded too. Papers said that sex work in Dublin nearly came to a halt altogether, while the media interest in what people might be up to behind closed doors grew. Phones were going unanswered, Very few people were willing to come forward to police and it would have been difficult to get people to speak in the first place. The ongoing attention of the media didn't help that either. However, some progress had been made. Six other women who were working out of various other apartments around Dublin had spoken to police by that stage and had been interviewed. Some of the women who also spoke to the Sunday Independent expressed surprise that Belinda had been left on her own in the Liffey Street flat overnight. Sources had also told the press that during the search of the apartment in Liffey Street, 23 used condoms had been discovered discarded in one of the bins. The biological matter from those was being tested against samples taken from clients who had come forward voluntarily in order to exclude them from further investigation. Gardi were also carrying out what was termed retrospective tracing calls, on numbers that had been found in Belinda Pereira's diary, in an attempt to identify those clients of hers who had yet to come forward. Jim Cusack reported for the Irish Times that Gardaí were made aware of another woman who had travelled from England to Ireland to work, who had been beaten a number of months before Belinda was killed. This woman had not reported the assault to Gardaí at the time because of the nature of her work. When Gardi made contact with her, she told them that the man who had done this to her was in his 30s. According to the article, this man was also known to Ms. Pereira. He was a, quote, pimp and minor criminal, according to Gardi, and he had a reputation for demanding sexual favours from the women who worked under him. This was just one of a number of violent incidents that Gardi became aware of in the months before and then in the months after Belinda Pereira's killing. On the weekend of Sunday the 26th of January, the Sunday World reported that a number of pimps from the UK had arrived to protect women of colour arriving to work in Dublin. Of course, these men weren't particularly concerned about the women themselves, rather they were protecting their income sources. 
However, the women were also reporting that they were no longer welcome in the various agencies and establishments in Dublin. Black and brown women engaged in sex work were being paid particular attention to by Gardee, and that added attention was not wanted by those who ran brothels and sex work operations in the city. One woman of colour arriving from the UK that month was met at Dublin Airport by Gardee, who brought her in for questioning immediately. She was just one of an estimated 20 women who arrived in Dublin on a weekly basis at the time in order to engage in sex work while here. She spent four hours in Store Street Garda Station before being released. The woman knew nothing of what had happened to Belinda. She hadn't even been in Ireland in the last three weeks. She had, in fact, been on her honeymoon. The same weekend, Joanne McElgan had an article in the Sunday World which stated that a man, described as a pimp, who had been brought in for questioning just after Belinda died, had left the country and gone somewhere in Britain. The paper also described him as the prime suspect in the case and said that it was believed that Belinda had owed him money. It was also alleged that he had attacked sex workers in the past. Aged in his early 30s, he was not a quote-unquote popular boss, as he demanded sex from the women who worked for him. A week later, on the 9th of February, the Sunday World reported that over 50 clients of Belinda's had been questioned by Gardee. There were still about 12 men that they wanted to speak to, who had been listed in Belinda's diary by name or initial, along with phone numbers. Many of the men had come forward quickly in order to avoid knocks at the door or phone calls that they might then have to explain to families, especially once it was known that Gardee were trying the numbers that Belinda Pereira had taken a note of. Gardee said that there had been, quote, a good response, but we still haven't talked to all of her customers, end quote. Gardee also said they wanted to locate a taxi driver who had been seen picking up a man near the flat on Liffey Street on the morning of Belinda's death. They asked this man to come forward too. The inquest into Belinda's death was opened on the 19th of April 1997. John Harbison appeared at this brief hearing in the coroner's court and said that Belinda had suffered multiple blows to the head from a blunt instrument. There were lacerations, bruising, and swelling to her brain as well as skull fractures. Belinda's mother travelled to Dublin to attend this session, as did her father, who was asked to give evidence, confirming that he had been the one to formally identify Belinda's body. However, the inquest was adjourned as the investigation was still ongoing and it was hoped that criminal proceedings would occur in relation to the person responsible for Belinda Pereira's death, whenever Gardie discovered determinative evidence of who exactly that was. A year later, on Saturday the 18th of April 1998, a Garda source told the Irish Independent that there was still no prime suspect in the case, but that the investigation was still open and ongoing and the detectives working it were determined to find Belinda's killer. This information came after the inquest into Belinda's death was adjourned once again on the 16th of April. This time, however, the coroner's court was informed by a Garda inspector that, though the investigation was still ongoing, it was felt that the inquest proceedings should now go ahead. A Garda witness went on to outline that, to date, 
400 people had been interviewed in the course of the investigation. Numerous blood and fingerprint samples had been taken, and detectives had also definitively ruled out a number of suspects from England. The court was informed that police were in regular contact with Belinda's family, who had returned to Sri Lanka. It was decided that a date for the inquest hearing would be set. After this hearing, a Garda source told Catherine Cleary, writing for the Irish Times, quote, The only thing these women see of Dublin is the airport, a taxi to the apartment and back. She was there in that little rabbit hutch of an apartment for a week on her own, end quote. The guard said that this was one of the saddest murder cases he had ever dealt with. And so, on the 29th of July, 1998, the inquest into Belinda's death was held. There, Dublin City coroner Dr Brian Farrell made his own appeal to the public for anyone with information in relation to Belinda's death to come forward. During the hearing, the jury at the coroner's court heard from Dr John Harbison, who told them of his findings in relation to Belinda's cause of death, as well as Garda detectives who brought the six-person jury through the investigative steps taken in Belinda's case. Belinda's family did not attend the inquest hearing. The jury returned a verdict of unlawful death. A month later, in August of 1998, Belinda's case was highlighted by Crime Stoppers as one of ten unsolved cases which Gardy had determined to be of a particular high priority. Rewards for information in those cases were also offered. This would be just the first in a series of appeals which would follow in an effort to find Belinda's killer and see justice done in the case. The appeal was renewed in October of 1998. Belinda's case was then featured on RTE's Crime Call programme on the 18th of October 2005. A reenactment of her last few days was broadcast in the hopes of perhaps jogging someone's memory who may have been able to provide further information which could help solve her murder. The Irish Independent reported in December of 2006, alongside another renewed appeal from Gardee, that Belinda had had no traces of drugs found in her body at post-mortem, despite earlier articles published by the papers which stated that she had suffered with an addiction to cocaine. In late 2007, Belinda's case was passed on to the Serious Crime Review Squad when that unit was set up. Officers were pleased with the public response to the news of the establishment of what was called the Cold Case Unit, and said that they'd received a lot of information from the public too, following reports in the media regarding its establishment. They were hopeful. However, Gardy once again renewed their appeal for information in relation to Belinda's murder in December of 2014. By then, it had been 18 years since Belinda was found dead in the sublet flash in Liffey Street. A press statement released by the guards stated that detectives understood that people may still, even after so many years had passed, feel reluctant to come forward with information, but said that Belinda's family needed closure. The statement continued, quote, The person or persons who killed Belinda and who assisted in this murder have most likely spoken to people about what happened, perhaps expressing sorrow and regret at having left a young woman in the way that they did, end quote. Gardy asked people to, quote, do the right thing and make contact. Up to 30 clients had visited the apartment in the time after Belinda arrived in Dublin and before she was killed. Most of her clients were ruled out of the investigation. 
The room was ransacked, there was no sign of any sexual assault, and it was thought that between one and two thousand Irish punts had been stolen. Belinda Pereira's case is still open to this day. Gardaí and Store Street can be contacted about the case, or any information can be passed on via the Garda Confidential line on 1-800-666-111. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at Mens Pod, or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. This episode was originally written as a bonus episode, A Guilt Trip, published over on Patreon. I know that it's number one late and two yet another bonus episode, but if you keep an eye out over the next few weeks, there is a big announcement coming. And prep for that, as well as ongoing house buying and getting my brain to cooperate, has meant that I'm behind once again. I'm really excited about what's going on behind the scenes right now, so hopefully you'll agree it was totally worth it when it's all revealed next month. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. A special thanks this week goes out to Shelley Martin, Sabrina Catley, Amy Everish, Joanne Smith and Aaron White. If you'd like ad-free episodes or bonus episodes just like this one, head on over to patreon.com forward slash mensreapod. With thanks to our sponsors for this week's episode, BetterHelp and Noom. Remember, supporting our sponsors supports this show, so check them out in the show notes. I'll be at CrimeCon in London in June. Please come and see me. Use the code MENSREA for a lovely discount. Tickets are at crimecon.co.uk. I'll also be at the True Crime Podcast Festival in Dallas, Texas on the 24th to 27th of August. Visit truecrimepodcastfestival.com to grab your tickets. Our theme music is Quinn's song The Dance Begins by Kevin MacLeod. Additional music is by Juanita Meisel and Kevin MacLeod. This episode was researched, written, and produced by me your host Sinead. All sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on the website www.mensreapod.com. And so, till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do.